I'm sure you've all had that dream where you get abducted by aliens who are the size of little pickles, who move your belly button, and they all look like Annie Lennox naked, and they're just moving your belly button just to be malevolent. Radio Drome. A very important episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the rape ape himself, the Peter. You can make baby? How many of you even know what that's from? <laughs> I do. I know you do. Fred is here this week because Cecil, Cecil's son got sick right before the show, so Fred was gracious enough to step in and go, I'll be Cecil. Gosh, you said that. I can't think of a good joke to make fun of poor Cecil. Uh, Puppet Master 2 is the greatest movie ever. There you go. That's something yeah. I would say. Yeah, that's about as close as I can come. Cabin Fever is really good. No, it's not. <laughs> Shut up. You missed the subtle nuances of the way the flesh falls off, representing the social decay. <laughs> All right. On that note, if you guys don't want to deal with social decay, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Just hit me that social decay sounds like a rapper, yo. Actually, I can see that as a punk band, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like a social uh, so, um, social distortion kind of thing. Distortions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this week we're going to talk about the most important film. And, and what I mean by this is films that once they came out, everything changed after that. Now, sometimes that's just everyone else wanted to emulate that kind of film, like Star Wars, but Star Wars was important for other reasons. Films that changed everything. There are quite a few, and most of them are the fa you know famous ones because of the fact that they changed things. If you had to pick a film that you think changed either the industry itself or filmmaking itself what would that be not star wars because i already said that one well i'll tell you what because i'm shooting from the hip so i apologize i'm gonna go with one that does immediately come to my mind it was an experience of that time i mean star wars i was seven i was there but i can't really talk about how it affected everything i would say uh batman in 89 is just to shoot from the hip again is to me, the most obvious, because I would say that it had a, a, a strangely negative impact, even though the movie's fun. I like the movie. It changed everything in that, for some reason, everything just had to be a big, giant, overproduced blockbuster. For good or bad, it, it brought in the era of, like, some love Tony Scott. Bigger than life, I know you, like, lost Last, Last Boy Scout. And films like that. And I think they're a direct result more of Batman than, say, Lethal Weapon. Large, overproduced, everything was big. Uh, these were movies you had to really watch on 
a big screen to really kind of appreciate them. So I'm not saying they were all negative. It's just that every film that came out after Batman, I'd say not directly. We're talking less. Uh, Batman was 89. So we're talking less 90, but 90 into 91. And after there was just this glut of everything was big, big names, big stars. The photography was crazy and wild. And uh, it just seemed like everything changed after that. Now, maybe you disagree with me, but it did feel like that for me at that time. I actually agree with you. I do think Batman changed everything. Some for the better because it showed that the whole, because remember fantasy films had been on a slight downtick, you know, during the yeah. early 80s fantasy films were really big, and I'm going to call a comic book movie a fantasy movie just for lack sure, of a better why not? term. Might as well be. And they were on a slight downtick. You look at like 87, 88, I mean yes you had your Robocops and things like that but they were not as prevalent as they were in the early 80s and then all of a sudden after Batman it was an explosion. It was making people take sort of comic book, comic book seriously again. It did for Batman what I think the first, uh, Christopher Reeve Superman did for Superman. Like it made people kind of take notice again and take it seriously. There's a subtler thing. Like when Star Wars hit, everybody wanted a piece of the science fiction action. There was no doubt that we saw a rise in comic book films. No denying that. But I think it hit in a different way. It, it sort of, in the way Star Wars gave some legitimacy to Paul style fiction and people have to and i don't mean quentin tarantino by the way i'm talking about pulps the science fiction pulps the crazier mm. stories i think batman did the same thing in that regard well here's a good example i brought up the last boy scout if you look at films that came out in those early 90s they were like canon films with huge budgets that's probably the better they started backing these type of projects that normally they wouldn't they put money into like ghostbusters could not have existed before Star Wars, okay? Because the studios were afraid of science fiction. They just didn't do well. Those type, and big budget comedies especially didn't. The world had changed, and Star Wars brought about different movies, and, you know, Raiders Lost Ark, and then boom, and then you come up to Ghostbusters. And that's what I mean by change. It, it, it legitimized these crazier, weirder stories. And once again, Hollywood was pumping a lot of money. I mean, big budgets into movies. Normally that would, you know, probably be like, say, 20, 30 grand at most. We're now 80 or 90 million. And I said grand. I apologize. I meant million. You know what I meant? 20 or 30 million was now 80 or 90 million dollars. And you have to understand back then that was really expensive. I'm going to go with the first alien because I, I feel like that was a very new concept, at least for something that had come out theatrically. The overall concept, just the look of the xenomorph, the look of the ship, everything that would, it would come to be a standard for so many other movies to come afterward. I mean, you had all these like Roger Corman knockoffs of Alien. You had all these other bigger movies that were trying to be like Alien and trying all to emulate. Italian movies. Oh yeah, just so, so many, so many movies were trying to be in, in, in the same scope that Alien was. Like everything had to be this like weird xenomorphic bug-like creature thing. Like you had so many movies that were coming out like that. I think it really did change the tide for the science fiction horror film. Like I really did think it, it changed a lot for that sort of cinema. Still to this day, you see movies that are like alien. There was that one, what was that one with, was, I think it was, was it life with, with Ryan Reynolds and Jake Gyllenhaal? Pretty much alien. Like it's the same sort of thing. They find a life form 
It begins to grow on this like ship with a small crew. Everybody's trying to make the the next alien, and it's been happening since it came out. With Alien, we need to point out sometimes when when a, when the film changes everything, it's not the first film of that genre or that style, but it's the first that hits really, really big to change everything. Because, like, you know... You, just because it, it does everything just perfectly. It does everything right. I mean, I'm not saying that that was the first of its kind. I'm sure there were other movies in the 50s and 60s that were science fiction that had that sort of premise, but Alien just did it in such a, a memorable way that everybody wanted to be like Alien. Alien was a ripoff of It the Terror from Space. Just, it was done better. If you look at it's the difference between Blair Witch Project and Cannibal Holocaust. Cannibal Holocaust obviously came, what, a decade and a half before, maybe more? I, I don't know the date. 18 years. Uh, 18 years. But the Blair Witch definitely solidified it and and turned it into something that became a, a genre unto itself. So the found footage yeah. genre. Yeah. There were there were alien type movies. It, it's like, yeah, but it, it certainly didn't catch on. Just in the way that Black Christmas might have been one of the first of the it might have been the prototypical slasher, but Halloween obviously kicked off the game. There was Halloween that definitely did it. Halloween yeah. and like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, movies like that. That's what really solidified like the slasher genre because it did it in such such a unique way. Like you had this, you never saw killers in movies that looked like that. Like you, I mean, we had Giallo in the '60s and '70s, but they were usually just like normal guys. Whereas movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, you're like, we, we're getting these antagonists now that look weird and ghoulish and wear these these masks and these get-ups and they use these specific weapons that go with them like you know Myers with the big butcher knife Leatherface with the chainsaw Jason with the machete that kind of stuff these are that would be considered a game changer Black Christmas may have come out before Halloween but Halloween is what really did it because because of how iconic Michael Myers himself really is mm, I'd say the films were also more stylized this upping of production uh if you look at Black Christmas, it looks like a sleazy slasher. I mean, it, it does. does. It, it's got that vibe. And there's some good actors in that, actresses in that. It has that look. It has that sleazy slasher look. You get, look at Halloween. That's a slick looking movie, Jack. Well, yeah, John Carpenter was very savvy with using very little to make something look very big. Let's also go back to the beginning of, of cinema. Now, obviously, I'm talking about the silent era here. Look at, look at films that pioneered literally editing techniques camera techniques storytelling techniques that didn't exist before films like triumph of the will metropolis birth of a nation it's amazing to watch these movies nowadays and to see before that nothing had been tried like that yes birth of a nation and triumph of the will are both disgusting movies by their subject matter you can't deny how instrumental these movies were for cinema or something like citizen kane whether you think it's pretentious garbage or not orson welles invented probably half of the camera techniques and lighting techniques and editing techniques modern film relies on in that movie if you go back to the beginning what you see often is is that the director wasn't necessarily concept of auteur theory hadn't existed yet and i think wells he's the guy that made it slicker he did it in a way that became noticed but if you go before wells and i've brought this up is charlie chaplin chaplin recognized that you know being in charge of uh the films is what dictated the, how creative they were the force the look feel the sound he became obsessed a comedic performer to being you know he would write the scripts 
he would uh, direct them. He started doing the score. He did all the editing. I mean, he was obsessed. And all these things began to shape and change cinema in a way that we still feel today. So I've always felt he's gotten un- not quite the appreciation he deserves in this area because he really did change the way filmmakers looked at making movies. They began to say, hey, if I have total control, it 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 literally guides the output of this film. It's not less by chance, if you know what I mean. And so when Orson Welles comes along, you can't tell me he didn't see that and recognize the power in it. But I'm looking at something like Citizen Kane. The camera work and the shot compositions look nothing like anything else out in the 1940s. It, no, was, it looked very modern for its time, for sure. Yeah, it was yes. it was revolutionary. Same thing with Metropolis. Fritz Lang did what what should be impossible for the time period he made that movie in. No, that, I, that movie is almost eerie in how futuristic it looks. Like, obviously, it's meant to be futuristic, but it's it's as if he went forward in time and saw contemporary editing and filmmaking techniques and then went back to his own period and made that film. Like, that's, that's what it looks like. Well, if, if you're going to talk Fritz Lang, I have to point out the movie that I think is absolutely amazing from him, and Metropolis is a must-watch. If you're if you're a cinephile and you haven't seen it, it's one of those movies you got to put on the list. I've always felt that M was a better representation of what you're saying there about modern, the way films modern today look. If if it wasn't in German and black and white, it's a film like when I watched it, I was shocked at how contemporary it felt. It it, it felt very contemporary, and of course, this was decades and decades ago films in german with subtitles and i swear to you i remember the movie in english it's it's so immersive the shots the composition the editing the storytelling the narrative it's it's absolutely stunning and it's films like these that you know when people say oh i don't watch black and white film they're so old look around you might be shocked at how modern some of these air quotes, old films look because they were the pioneers of this technique, but not just to be a pioneer, but to tell a story simply better and make it more memorable. And, you know, you could take Kermit the Frog, as I said, and make, you know, Jim Henson did something amazing. It's the greatest special effect ever. He made people fall in love with a piece of cloth. But Fritz Lang made you care about a child murderer. Think about that for a second. When you watch M, you start to actually feel something for this guy. He's horrible. He's deplorable. But when he gives that final speech at the end, you you begin to understand him. It's no short part of it's a wonderful speech, but it's everything that led up to that moment. And all these things are in service of that. They're in service of the storytelling. Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, you're, there's no doubt the shot composition is so beautiful because it was like he discovered the art of repetition. That shot of uh, the very famous shot of uh, Kane with the newspapers all around him. There's lots of composition in that film where he fills the frame from corner to corner. There is something to look at. And I think that's really what Wells's contribution was, is he just made sure that everything in that frame is telling you the story. But then you also had something like King Kong. The original King Kong is probably the first big budget special effects extravaganza. Mm. And it's still a marvel. Yes, there are some, you know, technical mistakes in it and due, due to the stop motion and all that you can't tell me king kong was such a marvel that can you imagine 1933 audiences seeing that on the big screen and not knowing that they knowing that they'd never seen anything like this before ever no that would have been crazy 
I think you're absolutely right. There was nothing like that at the time in, in terms of effects, um, in terms of like story. It, it was very different and very groundbreaking. And I think audiences must have been shocked to see that sort of stuff, to see this creature on such a grand scale. It was because of the effects in King Kong that made Harryhausen who he was. And then his effects went on to continue innovating cinema. So it's, it's King Kong really does kind of it goes back to the very start of that sort of big, epic, special effects blockbuster movie. Let's stick with black and white for a moment here. 1968, Night of the Living Dead. That changed horror films, not just because it's the first time we got what we would call, you know, the modern zombie film. Because before that, zombies were voodoo zombies. They weren't reanimated corpses and things. And even though Romero, you know, kept calling them ghouls in the movie, they're zombies. Everything that has come out from the zombie genre since 1968 owes it all to Night of the Living Dead. Although, to be fair, he got the idea from Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, but those were vampires. So, if you want to split hairs i am aware of that but night of the living dead also was for, for its budget was an amazing achievement it was one of those transcendent films night of the living dead to me i think was a game changer i agree but this one's a little more alien in respect to i think that this is it, it's almost i almost wish we had somebody that had grown up in that time period with us because you hear a lot about things like such as civil rights the vietnam or unrest in the country in general. And uh, when you hear George Romero talk about it, he was like, I didn't necessarily intend all of that, making a movie. And the fact that the lead character was black, it was just the action of hiring an actor who was good enough to play that role, be that role. And it's ironic that it ended up kind of representing something much larger. So I, I don't think you can underestimate that importance and again we're we're legitimizing something that normally would have been uh, just part of the grindhouses of that time uh, something that would have been just made shown and forgotten slicker looking it, it had better production it had a lead that you hadn't seen again you can't underestimate that and of course the gore there's just nothing as gory as that not in america not at that time, for uh, sure. Not at that time. And I remember I saw that movie. They showed it unedited on MTV. And I got to tell on you. Halloween, I, 1984. I have that on tape. I was shocked. And that's not some, even at 14, you know, I had seen quite a bit of films at the, by that point uh, for a 14-year-old. And when I saw Night of the Living, I was shocked and repulsed. And along with everybody else was talking about it the very next day. And that's oh, in yeah, 1984. I mean, that, with that movie, for its time, it had, you know, people like eating body parts and walking around with severed arms in their hands and stuff. Like it was very intense for something that came out at that time. And I think what also makes it stand out is its character development. It had far superior character interaction development over anything else in horror that was really coming out, especially the zombie type stuff. Like I think what really makes Night of the Living Dead stand out is it's it's not just a spooky, scary, violent zombie ghoul movie. It's also really smart. It's very intelligent. It has a lot of social social commentary, social satire that that really makes it stand out. You feel like these are these are real people and not just dumb characters in a splatter movie. Well, and, and the, the fact that the zombies 
are generally the most memorable ones are the ones that were people we already met and they turn on those they love the brother turns on the sister the little girl turns on mother and father and so there's that underlying maybe just a little bit of the red scare in there just for good measure it could be anyone it could be you but there's also the theme yes even though the zombies do kill half of the cast the humans are the problem here. Romero is very adamant to point out, if these people could have just gotten along, they would have all lived. But mm-hmm. it was the infighting, and it was between Tom and Ben, who's got the bigger dick, and I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge, and all this. It was also talking about how we as people just can't work together. Yeah, no, it's- absolutely, because if they had just if they had just stayed quiet through the night, they all would have been rescued by those uh by the dudes with the guns that show up. It's kind of a in a weird sort of way, it's sort of the horror version of 12 Angry Men. You have the evidence presented and everybody's looking at it differently. They're all bringing their personal bias and they start to tear at each other because they ultimately don't have the the final answer. Well, let's let's get off that and go to the late 60s where the the new Hollywood movement. Now, I know the new Hollywood movement begins before Easy Rider, that there were a few films that started this, but after Easy Rider, nothing was the same. Easy Rider changed Hollywood itself, not just audiences and film. It changed the entire industry. And I think people forget because Easy Rider has become a punchline on sitcoms. You know, cartoons have Easy Rider homages and all that. I think people forget just how groundbreaking Easy Rider was in 1969. Oh, Easy Rider is a weird film i i greatly enjoy it though and i can really see the it's it's a cultural significance movie like this was definitely a film of its time and just dennis hopper's performance i think it was it was peter fonda was the lead he was the easy rider guy in america yes you had um very interesting early roles from uh, jack nicholson in that film and it really showed what was going on in america at the time very weirdly mean-spirited ending like it was it was a very like anti-hollywood film like it didn't feel like 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 a big uh in entertainment industry film it just felt very very raw and very real and almost like a like a grindhouse road movie in a way but it was a big film actually it was a very small film that that was mm. the whole point it's feeling of kind of Hollywood is what changed everything. Yeah. No one wanted to make this movie. Hopper and them took this to every studio in Hollywood. Remember, musicals were still being made at this time and the 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 audiences were sick of Hollywood telling them what America is like. This was the first movie that really said, "No, this is really what America is like." So Dennis Hopper said, "You know what? you i'm gonna i'm gonna use not my own money but i'm gonna get my own money i'm gonna make this little film that becomes the highest grossing movie of all time up to that point so that's what changed everything hollywood went did we really gauge this so poorly you know i mean even roger corman because you know dennis hopper worked with roger corman a, a lot up to that point corman said the biggest regret of his entire career he was offered the chance to invest in easy rider and even he didn't see the potential in it Even Roger Corman said, this'll never work. And then it works, and Dennis Hopper is like, f*** all of you. Yeah, one of the things I was going to add, because it's funny after you asked me what ones have changed, this was the second movie that ended up coming to my mind, because we just talked about a while ago how the Sundance scene was in response to those overbloated, large, 
blockbuster movies. That's why we ended up with the smaller independent scene. Uh, there's no doubt Easy Rider was the same thing. It was in response to what came before. And I was actually uh, one of the lost episodes of Movie Apocalypse was called The Musical Never Went Away. It was about how it just changed form. And Easy Rider was one of those movies. In fact, I think it was instrumental in showing that it could become something different. It wasn't people singing how they felt. It was more the songs were singing about how we felt at that time. It, the real America and the music represented what was going on in the time. So the film used that to its advantage. It wasn't like Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda broke out singing. It was these songs were saying exactly what they were feeling as they were traversing the countryside. Mm -hmm. It's as much a musical as any other film could be. And if you think about it, that film also is the progenitor of everything from Top Gun to Beverly Hills Cop with the way soundtracks were handled. That dang on, they didn't have that before Easy Rider. But then let's also jump into the 1990s, 1994 specifically. You had another sort of new Hollywood come about with two movies, Reservoir Dogs and Clerks. Also did basically what Easy Rider did in 69, although not to the same degree with changing Hollywood. Remember how everything changed in in low-end Hollywood after Clerks and Reservoir Dogs basically came in and said, it's a new paradigm, people. Pretty much, yeah. It was, it, um, brought a love for more independent level cinema to the fold to a, to a brand new audience. Well, uh, not to counter anything I said previous or just now about that scene, but there's something that has to be brought up about the types of films that were being presented in and of themselves were not new. I think that's really important to know. We tend to say things like, oh my gosh, films are getting so much more shocking now. Man, you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, go look at some of those Italian films, especially. Those films were shocking and violent, and not just the horror, that's the obvious, the polizai films, the cop films. Man, those films were very violent. Very, very <laughs> ugly depictions of, of society and law enforcement and criminals, like very real and visceral for sure. Completely. Beast with a Gun has them melting a dude with lie, remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course in our own our own country we had the black exploitation movement. You know, I know some people call it the grindhouse movement, but those were just where the films were shown. Tarantino specifically was just tapping into that market that was already there. He just sort of brought it back, if anything. He he gave it a a slick new look, upgrade, if you will, and brought it back to the cinema. I mean, if you look at Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, you look at any of his films, ultimately, they're no more violent than any of those films that had come out in that time period. In fact, if anything, they're tamer, better production value, just like I said about Halloween versus Black Christmas, but even more so. It was just re-tapping into that feeling, that rawness. If Star Wars took away that rawness, as uh, I think it was Ebert, Roger Ebert was talking about, or Siskel, one of them had talked about Star Wars took away that rough, raw edge of cinema that was growing up in the 70s, and it just sort of stopped, then Sundance period definitely brought it kind of back. Clerks, of course, is more comedy, but 
it was more pornographic in its language. People weren't used to that kind of dial. They were used to Eddie Murphy because, you know, Murphy had been out and F this, F that, F everything. Scarface had been out. But this was different. This was young people working minimum wage jobs. And so, again, I think they just tapped back into something that had already existed and people were ready for it again. It, it, it had just become time for uh, things to change yet again. And sometimes that change now... Some people like this movie and what it did, and some don't. I'm in the don't category. Go to 1995. Scream. It changed everything. Not just in the horror genre, but in the thriller action genre. Scream changed everything, I think, for the worse. To a degree, I think Scream was necessary, because the slasher genre, while it had kind of died out by that point, it had made itself into a farce, and there needed to be something that called out slasher movies for what they were. I think Scream was not the right thing to do it, because I don't think it was clever, funny, or unique in any way. There needed to be something to bring the slasher movie back. And we can't deny what Scream did, even though I don't like the film and I can't stand Kevin Williamson. I would just say that Scream, we actually have addressed this before, and yeah, it was the the bell tolling for the slasher film. I think we all know that. Comedy and parodies have always marked the end of a trend. Covered that a billion times. The the thing that I think Scream was really tapping into again was the same thing that maybe Clerks was tapping into, was the youth market. And making the voice and the life of the teenager more relevant again, for lack of a better way I, I i think it was man i i don't know i don't want to marginalize this but i the word trendy just comes to my mind when i think of it it it, it caught on to a market that became trendy and it, it really was sort of part of a movement that went on for several years that that the writer definitely profited off of for a very long time i mean it's almost as if he was the creator and the killer of that time period where everything was about teens and what they were going through oh yeah and somebody's cutting their heads off on the side well scream was definitely a game changer whether you like it or not i mean it 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 brought slasher films back into the fold if you know, albeit in sort of a mean-spirited kind of way. I mean, I enjoy Scream. Um, it's certainly better than I know what you did last summer. And by the Scream way, is, I agree. I like the movie too. I just want to stay. Yeah, Scream is okay. Scream is fine. Scream it's is fine. a fine film. Even the I actually quite like the sequel, Scream Two, a little more. But for for that type of movie coming out at that time, I think it was the best. I mean, you you had other stuff at that time that was trying to mimic Scream. You had you know, as I said, uh, I know what you did last summer. There's urban legend movies like this. Even Halloween H two O tried to be like Scream, which is just weird having... Children of um, the Corn 5 or 6? Remember that one that was such a blatant Scream <laughs> Children of the Corn movie? That's so strange to me when when like old franchises like already well-established, they have fans, they, they know what to do with it, what works, and they try to be like something that's new. I mean, it's it's the same thing with what, what like, sort of what Rob Zombie did with his Halloween remake is instead of making a Halloween film, he made a Friday the 13th film with Michael Myers. Like, it, it's the same thing with H2 well they made again they made a halloween film but as a scream film and it's it's why i i feel like some of these movies did poorly whereas scream was so great because it was kind of its own thing you had other established franchises trying to be like scream so it it mm-hmm. changed 
for the better and for the worst. It changed for the better because it reintroduced people to kind of a forgotten genre, but for the worst because people were utilizing it very poorly. And it, it makes me kind of happy that slashers are making more of a proper resurgence nowadays. I mean, there's actually some some good ones that are coming out that are actually being noticed by people like uh, Terrifier is one that I would recommend. It's just about this creepy clown that goes around slicing people up on Halloween. Like it's it just goes back to what makes a slasher work, just visceral stuff instead of just this self-aware it's stupid it's like okay you you can take yourself a little bit seriously it's fine to do that it's fine to be genuine and sincere without worrying that someone's going to shit on you let's go back to i think it was 1970 something like fritz the cat had never been seen before not not just not just on the fact that it was an x-rated cartoon everything back she did in that movie, the animation style, the fact that all the voices were non-professionals that were just, you know, he would just record people talking and then animate to that rather than have people in a studio recording. You had, you had the, the plot, which was very much a, cause we're transitioning from the sixties into the seventies, a fuck the sixties, you know, fuck hippies kind of mentality changed everything when it came to animation. I mean, there had always been dirty animated shorts before that, but what actually did cannot be a ignore no i mean there's stuff that still holds up in that movie that is like relevant to today in terms of social commentary you can actually youtube it you just have to youtube fritz the cat sjw scene and it's pretty much like a lot of the way people talk I now no geraldine yes that that scene of like the, the 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 crow obviously meant to be like the the black person and the, the white college chicks around him trying to sound very enlightened and progressive but then also unintentionally coming across as very bigoted as well which which is happening a lot on on social media and stuff nowadays too is people trying to be so progressive and so left-leaning that they don't even realize how racist they actually sound be the descending voice here on this one i i don't think Fritz the Cat was a game changer, not in the way we've been using it. It's definitely, it was different. There's no disputing that. There was nothing like it, at least on those terms, unless you read underground comics at the time. Or the short films, as you said, that were out. I I think that if if it's a game changer in any way, it's more intriguing about the kickback response Fritz the Cat created, that films and animation went the opposite direction. I've always felt that American animation has lacked an adult quality. And when I say adult, I don't mean using the F-bomb and sex and that. I mean just talking about mature subjects. Uh, Americans have always had a bit of a problem with this. They they can't absorb it. I mean, Secret of Nim was too much for people in 1980. I mean, I want you to think <laughs> about that. Secret of Nim and compare that to Fritz the Cat, which came out before. It went the opposite direction. I don't think it influenced anybody per se that you can see those track marks where you can go back Oh, it was right here. It was more like it caused an anti-response. They, no, we don't want that. We don't want to see that. And it was almost exhibit A and why we ended up with a glossier group of films such as Star Wars and, you know, Disney animations began to make a bit of a comeback. But really animation kind of went into the toilet for quite a long time time after that so it, it's it's an interesting one to be sure well it's, then... it's a socially relevant movie but i don't know if it actually changed the game so to speak i have to agree mm. with fred here well what about something that changed the game on the visual sense now the movie was a bomb but blade runner i think has influenced more <laughs> of modern cinema than almost any other film since 1982 oh for sure 
Uh, can I just say, I'll, because I want to trail off of what we just talked about, animation, that if you look at three of the films we've already brought up now, Blade Runner, Alien, and Star Wars, these three movies, especially like, I, I know we're talking more of the American scene, but in Japan, if you look at what happened in Japan after these three films, I'm telling you, there's an entire period where you can see at very least one of those films influence on animation. Oh, absolutely. And- look at, uh, look at Ghost in the Shell, Akira, things like this. Like they're absolutely trying to be like an animated version of something that has the aesthetic of, of Blade Runner. Oh, completely, completely. And I could name off title after title. I'm not going to do it. It just takes up time. But trust me, mm-hmm. there was just a slew of films where an alien was on a ship killing everybody off one by one. Blade Runner. Oh my gosh. There, there's well, Armitage. The third is the one that comes to my head right off the bat, which is before Ghost in the Shell. That whole thing is about what is it to be human? There's also uh, Battle Angel, Battle Angel Alita. Oh yeah. Very Battle much Angel. Blade Runner. Oh, completely. It, these films influence it. And then of course, then you go throughout all of Europe, these three films, the exploitation genre, which we've already brought up, the the star crashes and more than we can name. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this these three films, I think, specifically just like together, I think they just really sort of unlocked the world scene uh, for cinema. If you want to solidify it, because it's not just those three, I think you've also got to throw in Terminator and Robocop. With those five, those five films, everything was trying to be like something from them. Something oh, had. I, I don't disagree at all. Something no, had no, to be a, right. no, no. something had to either be a robot cop or a cyborg that was trying to feel human or an alien on a ship that was like had a bone like structure. Everything was trying to be something like that, and that was you could see that from low budget American films. You could see that from like the Italian knockoffs. You could mm. see that in in anime just all over the place uh, in the eighties and in Japan when they were making that kind of stuff. Like it's, I believe. If you really, if you really put some thought into it, I think it's those five movies that have influenced, like, have been influencing pop culture and still are for the last, like, 30 years. I think Blade Runner was the first time in live action what we consider cyberpunk or the dirty rundown future was ever really visualized. Alien had come out before and that was kind of a dirty thing, but that was just a very, very isolated little, you know, the yeah. ship. Yeah, yeah, it was like, Bla- this, is, Blade this Runner, is what, uh, this is what space truckers are like, whereas Blade Runner was was like, this is actually the living, world living on Earth in this kind of future. Now, it had technically been visualized before in Heavy Metal a year earlier. Even Ridley Scott said he took some of his visual influence oh, yeah, from, from the uh, Harry Canyon segment of Heavy Metal. But that was all, animation. Uh, that was all artwork from like Mobius and, and things like that. Yeah. Whereas Blade Runner was the first true visualization of the cyberpunk genre. And yet, mm. strangely enough, it's not even that cyberpunk when you, you know, analyze what cy- the cyberpunk genre is. But it was so visually groundbreaking on two levels. One, Philip K. Dick got to see some of the special effects. He died before the movie came out. But he got to see some of the special effects test footage before he died. And he actually said, I don't know how you did it, but that's exactly what was in my head when I was writing the novel. And William Gibson was writing Neuromancer, which wouldn't come out till two years later. And when he saw Blade Runner, it was so close to what he was writing, he almost quit writing Neuromancer because he thought the book's just going to be seen as a ripoff of Blade Runner. That's how in tune with what we think of cyberpunk is that Blade Runner was. And you tell me you don't see the Blade Runner influence on 
every contemporarily futuristic movie that has come out since 1982. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you see, it's that whole aesthetic of like the giant screen with like the Japanese influence technology all over it, the airships and the, the, the really. Bands. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. The, the really big, cold looking bulky buildings that are just seem to be endless in its in its height the the flying cars that are at mid-level the smog dirty look like so many things have been have been trying to to copy that and and going back to philip k dick and, and william gibson i mean how how big of a compliment is that that the the author of of this of this original material and of the book actually tells you that this is what was in his head I and mean, that's rare and william gibson himself seeing the movie and going I can't keep writing this because this is almost just like what was in my head to begin with. These visionaries, like I would call Philip K. Dick and, and, uh, William Gibson, they are absolutely visionaries. And for them to compliment Blade Runner as a film to that point, it shows you just how influential it really is. I have to backtrack for a moment and tie back to Fritz Lang that I think I left out something very important that we said Met- uh, Metropolis was a game changer and I brought up M. The German expressionist movement gave birth to what we call noir, okay? And noir just means black, for those that don't know, and it means it's those heavy shadows that you see in movies uh, that are called noir films. It's negative space, and uh, where light is shining is is very important to the narrative, and German uh, expressionism, such as Fritz Lang created, was so influential on American cinema. I mean, our entire detective <laughs> mythology visually comes from that movement fast forward to blade runner it's a detective story that is called a noir and gave birth to another movement that's called neon noir yes and this is the look i think your guys are talking about that it's like the umbrellas with the lights on the handles everything is bathed in that sort of like that dirty city street look you know <laughs> mm-hmm. that, even with how like bright and shining like the neon colors are and those those giant screens with like the 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 geishas on them or whatever the the city the city still looks so dirty anyway like it just shows how run down everything is like these colors are these colors are so bright but everything just still looks really really grimy i i i think if i can get a little philosophical about it i think the ideal of that is that the city is both alive and completely uncaring about what you do you Mm -hmm. don't matter the city is its own entity and the city will go on Absolutely. Well, it it ties into what I was going to say that neon noir obviously is not darkness. It's it's lit. And I think the concept behind neon noir is more that visually you can see something and it still is lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, You still don't see it. It's buried among so much repetition that it's actually lost, uh, that it's just an ocean of people in that film. It's it's opposite than the book. The book, there was actually people were dying. There wasn't many people, hence why there were replicants. The the animals were being replicated. The people were – well, they weren't called replicants in the book, but you get my point oh, yeah. well, well the that, book had a lot of a lot of other weird stuff you actually you actually had the android sheep and you had a uh, kipple and all this weird stuff i mean the, the movie is technically only like one small part of what the book was all about they, they just kind of took that whole concept of hunting replicants replicants or androids or whatever and made a movie about that which I think is fantastic. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't think you could do a proper adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I mean, that's a very out there book. I don't think. It's also a very internalized book. Yeah. To, to have the character, I mean, a lot of that book takes place inside 
these characters' heads mm-hmm. and their thoughts. And you can't do that in a movie unless you use the, like the narration gimmick, which Blade Runner is famous for people hating the narration. Well, yeah. Well, if I can just say real quick, uh, just for the record, I'm not doing the book movie comparison. I, oh, yeah. I was making the point that you can still be lost. You, you can still see lots of things and not pay attention to them. And that's what a city, how many people walk through New York City and don't see each other? Uh, that's an old, you know, concept. Mm-hmm. And it, strangely enough, if you, if you know Philip K. Day, ugh, Philip K. Dick's work, I think you can find a lot of his other stories, all, a lot of his other themes in Blade Runner. It's mm. not just this one story. It's just like Total Recall and Blade Runner actually share a lot more in common than people might know if you read no, some absolutely the short do. stories. There's a short story called Recall, which is about a guy who is finds out he's a prisoner in his own mind. Mm. And being a prisoner in something that doesn't feel like a jail cell is a theme very common in Philip K. Dick. And I think that's what, if you look at Deckard in a conceptual sort of way, all these characters, Deckard, the replicants, all the people, they're prisoners and they don't even know it. And that's a thematic element of that story. It To say it's a game changer is an understatement. Well, we got one more game changer to talk about then. The Matrix. No one can deny everything changed after 1999. After that movie came out, and I'm not just talking everything that used bullet time and that kind of thing. The Matrix is what, by all rights, should have been a low-budget, maybe, you know, $2 million film. The fact that it became, I mean... Just the look. People were wearing those trench coats and the glasses and Matrix was was groundbreaking. Even if its story really wasn't that groundbreaking, the Matrix did change everything. Going from Blade Runner to Matrix is interesting because that story is closer to probably what Philip K. Dick was writing. That most of that reality doesn't exist. And there was a movie that was made, and I think it came out just before it called uh, the the 13th Floor, or excuse me, the uh, 14th Floor. No, wait, it was called the 13th Floor. It's funny, between the two films, I like the 13th Floor better. That's a personal opinion. I I like story. I'm always drawn to more story-oriented things. And so the 13th Floor, I think, hits the themes a little better. What is reality? How can you tell? what defines it what defines us what defines our actions matrix was glossier it was bigger it was louder it was so visual i remember walking out of that movie and actually feeling like i had just been rolled and i was you know checking my wallet to make sure the money was still in it it, it feels it really, like you just uh just got out of a fight it was it, it it's one of those things i'm not trying to over loud what's basically a very large, big-budget, you know, Hollywood spectacle. But there's no doubt that this thing packed a wallop. It packs a wallop maybe in the same way at one time in our history, Gone with the Wind hit people. Mm-hmm. When people saw this spectacle and they went, oh my gosh, this is so big, my, my head feels like it's going to explode. This movie just, it just gives you a left punch with a visual, then a right punch, then a left, and then it starts throwing these wild, Jungian, <laughs> philosophical, uh, <laughs> existential things at you. I mean, you just leave there and you don't really even notice that there's not really a whole lot of story. I would Um, even compare it. I would compare it to something like uh, Good, Bad and the Ugly in terms of its scope. Is it? I actually have uh, Good, Bad and the Ugly was on my list. We just didn't get the chance to talk about it. Well, we can kind of throw it in a little bit there just because I feel like the scale Clint Eastwood as that character of, of the man with no name, he just seems so so larger than life in that movie and he's instantly iconic when you see him just those those Sergio Leone westerns they I think they kind of made westerns cool again 
Like, like they, they revitalized that. They, it went from, you know, the cheesy John Wayne stuff to like this, like very stern, brutal character and these, these amazing shots, uh, these great grand scope close ups and, and just really, really fantastically stylish looking films for something that's, that's just simply a Western. And then you have, um, The Matrix, which is not the deepest film. Like it's not gonna, it's not the same level of, of something like Blade Runner or, or any of those science fiction films, but the, the, scope of it the way it looks the way it's shot the the color palette that they choose the way keanu reeves looks as neo with the the sunglasses and the trench coat and the guns even his like hairstyle it sort of reminds me of good bad and the ugly the way you see clint eastwood like he's just instantly recognizable and instantly iconic as that as that character and in the scope of the world that he exists in matrix kind of made people remember cyberpunk again because cyberpunk had gotten very very cheesy over the years over the course of the 80s and the 90s it, be, it became a, a bit of a joke and then when and, when, and i don't agree that it is i love cyberpunk movies but there were a lot of cheesy movies that kind of made people under underplay it and then when matrix came out it made that kind of stuff cool again like people were looking at it from you know the machines controlling everything the what's reality what isn't reality you know that that whole cyberpunk aesthetic became the genuinely unironically awesome again thanks to the matrix whether whether you like it or you don't whether you think it's deep whether you think it's philosophical or whether you think it's dumb it doesn't matter it made that concept cool again the same way that i think movies like good bad and the ugly made cowboys cool again also to the point with Good, Bad, and the Ugly, you tell me one person who can think of a Western and not hear that one very iconic music cue in their head. Exactly. It doesn't matter if it's a, it's an American Western. When you think of a Western or a showdown, what music cue enters your head? No, exactly. It's the, the Ennio Morricone. Ah, yes. Wah, yes, the, the Ennio Morricone songs. Uh, of course, the, uh, wah, 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 all that stuff. It immediately pops into your head. Um, and it's the same way when, when you mention something like cyberpunk or or science fiction, a lot of people are going to remember bullet time. They're like, oh, like Matrix, like bullet time. It's like it, it, the Matrix did that for the genre. It made it it made it recognizable and it made it cool again. The same way that when when you think of westerns, you think of that Ennio Morricone score, or you think of just just Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. I think the word that really ties these two films together more so than maybe thematically is the fir- a term operatic. Utilize music, for instance, in a very calculated ways. Yes. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was actually edited to the Ennio Morricone music. So it shows how important Ennio was to Sergio Leone in telling mm-hmm. the story. He literally had the music first and then edited the scenes to the music and uh, imagine the amount of hubris today <laughs> that, that we don't even allow such a thought. Don Davis, who, who might not be a big influential name, but if you listen to his uh, discussions on the movie, he talks about very complex musical themes, well, one of which is called mirroring. When he watched the movie, he noticed that there was lots of shots of mirrors. There was this idea of like the opposite you. You know, or how you perceive. So in the movie, if you notice kind of a won't won't sort of sound, it's actually the music uh, starting at a point and then returning to a point. It's mirroring itself. It's throughout the entire scope of the film. You know, in an opera, when you sit there, there, there's two types of storytelling often referred to. One is, of course, the more narrative, the the story-based, character-based, dialogue-based. The other is a more emotional storytelling. And operatic deals in that emotion. It pulls it out of you. And so... With a man with no name, that's very much it. There's not a lot of dialogue in that movie. 
it's mostly spoken through musical cue, through people staring. And in opera, you're sitting in a chair and the visuals are, my, you know, a long ways away. These, like you had pointed out, the camera's zooming into eyes, the close-up of the hand twitching. And it's not unfair to compare Matrix, at least on some level, to that same thing. Because pulling us in through emotion, it, it has us go down Neo's throat with the as he takes the pill, you know, and the silver coats the inside of his body. And it, it's very emotional. We, we feel these these feelings with the characters as Morpheus is getting out of the chair and running to the chopper as the minigun is firing. And it's all much like Good, Bad, and the Ugly, or much like a, your typical Sergio Leone film. It seems like The Matrix is playing more that it's being used. Like, every scene is orchestrated perfectly with, like, the electronic songs that they're using. Like, it's it's almost like, like again, with, with Good, Bad, and the Ugly, like, The Matrix is playing to that song rather than the song playing to the movie. It's not an unfair comparison. Well, before we leave, I, I had some other ones on my list we didn't get a chance to talk about that I do at least want to mention that I feel were game changers. There, there's stuff like Saw, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Goodfellas, Godfather, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Road Warrior, Seven Seal, Psycho, Brazil, Last Temptation of Christ, Seven. I think all of those, for their time periods, did change something. In Hollywood. Oh God, Italy and Japan have so much to owe to, uh, George Miller for, from Road exactly. Warrior. Like, Jesus Christ. Uh, how, yeah. Just Let's like, that um, six. Let's make that number six, Peter. That's the sixth <laughs> film. Yes. Actually, six most influential films would be Blade Runner, Alien, Robocop, Star Terminator, Star Wars, Road Warrior. I think these are the most influential films ever because, especially if you look at certain cultures like, like Japan and Italy, like, how many Mad Max knockoffs did Italy make in the 80s? <laughs> it was like four a year. Uh, we, we need Cecil for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, with Cecil not being here, where can people find Peter if they would wish to yell at him or throw money at him? I'm sure you've all had that dream where you get abducted by aliens who are the size of little pickles who move your belly button and they all look like Annie Lennox naked and they're just moving your belly button just to be malevolent. And where would people give Peter those kind of stories? Or am I the only one that has those dreams? Um, Jesus. You can put your finger in my belly button if you go to on Twitter at Cinematica, um, YouTube, The Cinematicus, Facebook, The Cinematicus, 1201beyond.com, uh, Patreon at Cinematica. You can also give me money while you're putting your finger in my belly button or a pickle or whatever the f*** Josh was talking about. I need to go lay down. Okay, Fred, follow that. Well, I am currently Ronan. I, I wander the country. Uh, I, I, I have no home. I may be outside your window now peering in as you listen to this. Wow. What are we doing? <laughs> that is deep, man. Okay, I'll just do a normal one. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Try to be a cut above.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.